Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines Magazine podcast. I'm Kwangu Liwewe, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. On May the 26, 2023, Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni signed the Anti-Homosexuality Act of 2023 into law. The legislation imposed even steeper sanctions on LGBTQ Ugandans than previous laws had, outlawing the promotion of homosexuality and punishing same-sex activity with life imprisonment and even the death penalty in so-called aggravated cases. The law had plenty of backing within the Ugandan establishment, with only two members of parliament dissenting on the vote. But it also had powerful backing from abroad. Uganda has long been a target for far-right American evangelical and Pentecostal groups, who have poured more than $26 million into East Africa in an effort to promote the new law. I'm joined today by Lydia Namubiru, an investigative journalist who spent many years following the flow of American evangelical dark money into Africa, Europe, and elsewhere. She's the news editor at The Continent, which is a Pan-African newspaper, and was formerly Africa editor for Open Democracy's 50-50 team. In 2020, she took part in an investigation which exposed the $280 million dark money global empire of the US Christian right. Lydia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So let's start with looking at the history of the US evangelical movement in Uganda. Just walk us through what that looked like leading up to present-day Uganda. We shouldn't speak only of the US evangelical movement, but Christianity in the 19th century coming from Britain and France. They're very much tied to homophobia in Ugandan public life. So, so if you go back the late 1800s, which is when Uganda was starting to be formed as a colonial creation, the colonialists needed to delegitimize, defeat and delegitimize the native nations that were that were in the kingdom, the native nation around which they built Uganda, that is Uganda, they had to defeat a king who was a bisexual man. And part of the propaganda to defeat that king, I mean, they used violence, of course, to defeat that king, but they also delegitimized him by making a very big deal of his bisexuality, of his homosexuality. They claimed that he was abusing young men in his palace, and they then mobilized those young men around around that, around resisting him, uh, both as a king and as a you know sexual being. And and so I think Christian homophobia is very much a fabric, part of the fabric. It's from the founding of Uganda, the colonial the state also was created by colonialism, Christian homophobia has been a very, very much a part of how that state justifies itself and delegitimizes other centers of power. Uh, and so it, then it's not that surprising how much even the modern state is invested in homophobia as a public, as a political tool. But more recently, so then, you know, just brief background on Uganda, it was colonized in the, these native communities here 
were colonized starting the late 1800s, starting with the most powerful, best organized native nation that was there at that time, the Buganda Kingdom. And then on to, with that as a nucleus, other communities were annexed and eventually you had a much larger Uganda. And then that much larger Uganda got independence from Britain uh, in the early 1960s, 19, it was 1961. Sorry, I should be a better Ugandan and actually know that date. October 9, October 9, 1961, I believe, Uganda got its independence from Britain. But then the post-independence years were quite turbulent. And worst of that turbulence, the political violence, ended with the coming to power of Yoweri Museveni after a war, the current president, Yoweri Museveni is still the current the president of Uganda. He came to power in 1986 after fighting the war. And a big part of his agenda had, was to rebuild the country. And in that, he got lots of support from US Christians. So that's kind of the beginning of the presence of US Christians in, in particular. And they got quick access to power at the highest levels because they came offering to connect this government that was trying to rebuild and trying to marshal resources from outside to power in the US, to powerful men in the US. And one of those groups was, well, some of the people who did that belonged to a group called the Fellowship Foundation, which is a conservative Christian organization that focuses on ministering to men, men of power, powerful men in the U.S. and abroad. In the U.S., they are most, they're, they're best known for the National Prayer Breakfast. So basically, this networking event that all U.S. presidents have attended and People from all over the world were looking to rub shoulders with the powerful in the U.S. come to every year. They've since stopped hosting it. They've since spun it out into an, an, an event that's independent of them. But yeah, so, so that group and some influential people within that fellowship foundation came to have close relationships to power in Uganda, but there's also lots of other U.S. Christians coming in, uh, you know, as humanitarian, part of humanitarian missions, whether that's part of major organizations or as individual volunteers coming to do this and the other. And that then seeded an evangelical movement in Uganda as well. So, yeah. So that by the early 90s, you started to have Ugandans who identify as born-again Christians. That became a major, major movement. And that has continued. But as things change in the U.S., as the U.S. evangelical movement has become more and more obsessed with culture politics, so has the evangelical movement here and their collaborations have continued. Let's talk about the work that you've been doing, right? Some of it has revealed that these evangelical churches, obviously the ones that are leaning to the right, that they had a direct hand in the criminalization of the LGBT people in Uganda. 
What I want to find out now is why is Uganda such a fertile ground for this anti-gay ideology? I mean, you've given us the historical background of how these movements came into Uganda and what they're currently doing today. But why is Uganda such a fertile ground for anti-gay ideology? Because Uganda itself, again, thanks to this move, how long US evangelicals have been active here, Uganda itself has a very active evangelical movement as a result. So that is part of it. They've been doing the work uh, of building or fertilizing the ground for over 40 years and winning souls, as they say, to their cause for over 40 years. So that's one part. But I think also we are in a moment that I think it's not really unique to Uganda. This, the fact that anti-LGBTQ, ultra-conservative politics targeting women's rights is in this particular global moment quite appeal, has real popular appeal, not just in, in Africa, but you know, in countries like Hungary, Italy. You still, you start, I mean, in lots of countries that you'd, you'd say are progressive by default, you're starting to see these movements, uh, movements rise up again and gain more popular appeal. So I think part of it is the moment, the global moment, driven by, you know, the, the ways in which we are networked around the world through social media and disinformation, misinformation, spreads faster, spreads further. So I think... I, I don't. I don't really think Uganda is more fertile ground. I, I, mean, I, I do think it is in the sense that it has had a growing evangelical movement for over four decades, and but I also think it's the it's the moment. It's a it's a global moment. To you know, the backlash is global. It's not just in Uganda. Okay, so seeing this new law that came in in May this year, now we're seeing countries like Tanzania, Kenya, they're also moving to further curtail the rights of the LGBT community. Do you think it's a ripple effect from the Ugandan law that came into effect a few months ago? It's hard to tell. I mean, some of some of that would be it. Once once these sorts of laws pass in one country, they animate the same sentiments elsewhere. I mean, now, uh, it used to be that when you travel elsewhere in Africa and you speak about Uganda, people talk about either Idi Amin or the ghetto kids more recently. Now people ask, oh, you're from Uganda. Where is Museveni and he is anti-gay and, you know, that, so that sort of spread is, is definitely likely to happen. But I also think that the global far-right movements have been building. It's not that, you know, I'm sure they have strategy to do, to take, to to be as global as possible and to focus to the, in the areas where there are this, where societal prejudice is still much higher and therefore they're, they're more likely to, to be successful in their agenda. So it's not... I, mean, I think, for instance, groups like Sitzingo have been active in Kenya uh, for, you know, at least half a decade now, really, really active, really, really pursuing, going after public officials, pushing them to pursue ultra-conservative 
policy agendas for, for quite a while. So whether or not you're going to have passed this law, this movement was already happening. I mean, Uganda has passed this law. Ghana has been considering one for about three years, and that started with the World Congress of Families uh, holding uh, a meeting in Ghana and drawing up support for ultra-conservative agendas, including anti-LGBTQ agendas, but they also include uh, attacks on women's rights, like uh, pushing countries to not liberalize their laws on abortion access, pushing countries to not liberalize their laws on um, surrogacy um, in uh, IVF, that reproductive technology in general, sexuality education. So it's been, it's been going on for quite a while. They've been building with renewed energy for sure. I think since you know, at least at, at least as at least since you know Donald Trump, and that re-energized uh, re the conservative movement in the U.S. And we've been doubling down. All right. Now that you've mentioned um, Donald Trump, that investigation that was done in 2020, it was conducted during uh, the Trump years when he was president. Of course, now we have Biden who's in control. What has changed in terms of the outreach of these Christian rights groups under the Biden administration era? I don't think their outreach has changed, but the extent to which one can expect support when you become the same support from the US, like that, that, that tone has changed. Now, groups that are fighting, groups that they are fighting here outside the world, I think, feel that these, if they turn to the US and ask, and ask for support to counter these movements that there might be some amount of support, although that's debatable if you ask me. But yeah, I think I don't think their their support has changed. I think the many of these groups, the Trump presidency was a morale boost. But for some of them, it was even a financial boost. So just because Trump isn't here doesn't mean you know that that enhanced capacity to campaign against rights has gone away. So, yeah, I think in theory, human rights defenders here expect that they'll have more support from the US in countering these groups. I, in practice, I haven't seen, I think the US government still very much deals with government to government and shows very little interest in countering their own citizens' activities abroad, adventures abroad, even when they are directly in direct, even when they are directly counter to what the US is as official policy. So I don't, I don't, I'm not sure anything has changed really. Now earlier you alluded to the fact that they are not just fighting LGBT rights, but access to safe abortions, contraceptives, comprehensive sexual education. These are the issues that they're fighting about. Now, what I wanted to find out is what do they stand to gain in Africa? You know, their work is global. And maybe the bulk of their impact is in Africa, but they've spent more money in Europe, for instance. I think they have more chances of success in Africa because I think to protect minority rights takes strong states. 
but African states, on top of being very young, like the Ugandan state, really as an independent state, wasn't really building, you know, state power, state processes, democratic processes, checks and balances until the mid-1980s. So these are very, very young states. Their systems are very, very young. They're also really overwhelmed states. They're overwhelmed by basic needs. They're not, they don't have the capacity, they don't have the bandwidth to deal with these sorts of cultural movements. And so, so I think part of the appeal to Africa is that the states are very overwhelmed, they're very young and still overwhelmed by bread and butter issues. So kind of anything that they see as cultural politics, they ignore. And if they can't ignore, they join the populist side of that, of, of those issues. So that's why those groups have more chances of impact in, Af- in the African context. So they, this is where they can part, they can, you know, be, they can push for the most extreme of laws. I think in much of the world, the idea that you can sentence someone to death for their sex life would not, I mean, you'd have to work a lot harder than they did in Uganda for that to pass. So that's part of the appeal. The states here are quite weak. They're quite overwhelmed. Even if they were interested in countering these movements, they wouldn't have the capacity to. Also, I think culturally, Africa still remains quite invested in Christian conservatism. Again, this is where, for instance, the Catholic Church is growing the fastest, while it's in decline, congregations were. So I do think there's some sense that this is the last frontier for conservative Christianity. And so they're for it, and for the last bit of territory that they hold. Okay. And uh, what about the African evangelicals? How influential are they, and what role do they play in spreading um, this U.S. evangelical ideologies for the far right? Oh, they're very, very, very influential. I think, again, religion is still here, socially still influential, but also politically. So like I was saying, the formation of the Ugandan state was really helped by missionaries throwing power in the native, the strongest native state, Uganda, and installing their followers as the leaders in that in that state, and then those followers working as collaborators with, the, with other colonialists to expand it out. And that still remains the, the play of power. Ugandan power, elite power, is still very much Christian and Anglican Christian. Um, so you, bishops here can meet the president whenever they choose to. They can put him under pressure to do things one or the other. The president's wife, who is also the minister for education, is an evangelical Christian. And so, yeah, that's so for I think for, for Christians here, it is that the old power game. They are in power, and this is preser- preservation of the power they hold. Okay, let's move on now to talk about the dark money trail. You did say that you were covering the Africa aspect of that investigation. Just tell us a bit about the investigation and how it was carried out for Open Democracy. 
So the U.S. Uh, many of these groups are registered nonprofits in the U.S. And so one can see their work. One can see their spending in the U.S. and outside the U.S. So a lot of what we know about them comes from reviewing thousands of documents they file with the internal revenue. So that team spent months looking at U.S. tax filings and was able then to to piece together how much these groups have spent over, over have spent over had spent over educate up to that point in different places that is Europe, Eurasia, Africa. It's just journalists sitting with government documents for many months and creating data sets that eventually connect the dots. Okay. So, yes, as Africa editor, when you were following this trail, did you have any challenges? I know some African countries, for instance, access to information is not um, available. Did you have any challenges doing this investigation? Yeah, of course. Uh, and again, this is why we depend so much on US, on US data. On this end, is completely opaque. Consider, considering many of them are giving to churches, that don't even file tax taxes with authorities here. Considering many of them are giving to individuals, individual campaigners, the money is very often opaque. It's hardly a trail to follow. You can just see things happening. And on this end, of course, there's also less publicizing of their own activity. I mean, in the US, these groups talk a little bit more about their work uh, on their websites because they do need to raise money the public, being uh, non-profits, they need to raise some amount of public funding to maintain their non-profit status. So they took a little bit more of their work. On this end, they have no such need. So they generally, they work without drawing any attention to themselves. They refuse to talk to journalists. Um, when they do talk to journalists, they, it's open. Friendly journalists who will tell their story that they want to tell. Yeah, so, so yeah, so, so there's that. Again, talking about states being weak, that's not a state considering following the money of every random white person who shows up. So even if the state wasn't, wasn't complicit, it would, it would still not really have the, the data. Okay, so now it's been about three years since that investigation was conducted. How impactful was it? Have you seen any results just from the expose? I think it's very, I think it depends on what you call impact. I think for African human rights defenders, it's really important for them to know what they're up against. Uh, it's not just, you know, that particularly homophobic pastor who trolls everybody on the internet, it's really helpful for them in terms of how they strategize and how they organize to know what they're truly up against. But I think no matter how people on the African side might feel about it, we have very little impact on you know, whether or not the US donors stop funding these groups. I'm not sure what other impact it has because, yeah, again, like you say, just three years down the road, the movement seemed entirely undetailed. Lydia, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. This has been The Lead, a podcast by New Lines magazine. If you'd like to hear more from Lydia, you can follow her on Twitter at NamLid. 
This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Kwangu Liwewe. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you.